Whoa, we are in the middle of John right now. For those of you who may be new here, one of the things we're doing is we're going through the Word of God in five years, and how we are doing that together is we're reading a section of the Scripture every single day of the week, six days a week, and then our sermons on Sunday are based upon our readings. And so if you'd like, a, uh, we have a booklet that has the Gospel of John, that's all that's, that we're doing right now is the Gospel of John, and you can grab that booklet to go through the daily readings. We've got bookmarks that have the daily readings. You can go to our website, our, our, to our YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church, and you can find our daily devotionals there where we're reading the scriptures that we're doing each week, and you can get a little bit from that as well right there. This week we read John chapter 9 through John chapter 11. And just as a way of reminder for us real quick, I want to take a minute, if you will, to kind of recap, because we're going to be all over the place within this entire section of Scripture today. So I just want to recap. We're not going to read it all. Um, but we start with Jesus healing a blind man, a man that's born blind. You know, it's not just a blind man who, who had been that, uh, been that way for a certain period of time. He was born that way. And this sets off an interrogation. They, they would say, in your Bible it says investigation. It really isn't an investigation. It's more of an interrogation. That the Pharisees come forth and start questioning the man about how he became to where he could see. You know? He was born blind and now he can see. And this confrontation ends up with him getting kicked out of the synagogue. And beyond that... We have him before Jesus where he recognizes Jesus as Lord and the Pharisees who are there saying, are you saying that we're blind? He said, well, if you said you could see, if you said you couldn't see, you wouldn't be blind. But now that you say you can, your blindness remains. And we move from there to Jesus talking about himself being the good shepherd and the gate for the sheep. And during that time, the Jews turn around and start questioning his claims about him and the father being one and they want to pick up stones to throw at him and jesus asks him why are you wanting to stone me to death like not for these good works that you've done because but because you who are a mere man claim to be god and jesus very simply says if i'm not doing the works that the father does don't believe me but if i do the works at least believe the miracles so that you'll believe i am who that i say that I am. So he points to himself and those miracles for proof. And this leads us to the very famous account of the death and the raising of Lazarus. And the death and raising of Lazarus is the terminal point, if you will, where we finally see that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, finally make the proclamation that they need to put Jesus to death. And they're looking for the opportunity for people to turn him in so that he might be arrested. This is a summary of what we've read this past week. Now, there's a movie, and I've mentioned it up here before, but it's, it's such a, I, I like this movie. You know, some people don't like Christian movies. They're like, they're too corny, they're too cheesy. Some of you might fall into that camp, camp. And not every Christian movie is corny or cheesy, but some of them are. I agree with that. 
One of them that I don't think is, is the, is the movie God's Not Dead. And God, if you haven't seen it by now, it's been out like a dozen years. I'm sorry. It's your fault if I'm spoiling it for you now. Okay? I'm sorry. Just, just This is on you, not me. Okay? Be like spoiling that line of a few good men, right? If, I, if I'm spoiling that line, you, you can't handle the truth. Well, I know what happens after that. You know, because that was a whole cliffhanger. It was made in 92. If you don't know it by now, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Okay? Same thing here. So at the, at the end, you have this debate between this student and this teacher. It's almost like a courtroom drama set up in a, a college classroom. And you have this teacher who is presenting the case against God and this student who is presenting the case for God. And it culminates in this, this very emotional, tense-filled event at the very end of this argument where he starts charging against the teacher and he says, why do you hate God? Why do you hate God? It's not enough for you to not believe in God. Everybody else has to not believe in God too. Why do you hate God? And of course, if you're watching the, uh, the, the trailer for it, it, it ends right there. You're like, ooh, what is he going to say? And if you watch the movie, he says, because he took everything from me. And it's a really emotional scene. Yes, I have nothing but hatred for God. And the student who is standing there asks a very simple question. How can you hate somebody if he doesn't exist? I think that's where we're at when we read these three chapters. John chapter 9. And when you first look at it, indeed, when I started doing my study, and John can verify, because I talked to John, I'm like, you know, in all the other studies that we've had, there's been like no, com- there's a common thread in each of them, the first three chapters, four and five, you can find this common thread. And at first glance, I did not see a connecting tissue between 9 through 11, but there really is. It truly is a section of its own. And the common thread of John's chapter 9 through 11 is the healing of the blind man. It's mentioned in all three chapters. Didn't even notice that until I started really diving in and doing the study. Just so you guys know, and so that we can set things up and see this as a whole, turn with me to John chapter 9. We're going to read this very beginning part, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and we'll go from there. And as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. This is the account, this this beginning of Jesus healing this blind man who at this point doesn't even know who did it. Just put some mud on his eyes, told him to go wash, and now this man who's been blind from birth sees. This is the setup. This is, I don't want to say the setup, this is the account that leads through all the way. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. When Jesus teaches about himself being the good shepherd and the gate for the sheep, we see this reference again. Verse 19 in chapter 10, it says this, At these words, many of the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, He's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Notice the reference, right? Back to this man. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Jesus, when he's interrogated by the Jews who are there and tries to give reference to himself, that's where he quotes at the, uh, toward the end of the same chapter, verse 37, it says, Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If you will remember when we talked about the very beginning of the Gospel of John, that the Gospel of John, we started from the end and we looked at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that many of the miracles Jesus did, but these are written for what? That you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have life. And we go back to that. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Why does he perform these miracles? So that even though they may not believe him, himself, at least believe what you're seeing. So that you may have life. Even he's wanting that for his opponents. And even at the tomb of Lazarus, after Jesus comes and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, verse 37, chapter 11, says this, but some of them, the Jews that are in the crowd, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? How interesting, right? That this this thread is all throughout our reading this week. Why is this important? What, what, what can we get? What can we learn about these recorded events? Well, number one, I believe that the healing of the blind man, the teaching of Jesus being the good shepherd and the gate, and the raising of Lazarus happened pretty closely together. Everybody remembers what's going on. Now, I don't know about you, but I, my memory fades quickly, right? I, I hate to say that. You, I mean... You get older and it fades quickly. You don't want to admit that it fades quickly, but it does. Where am I again? So, but the truth of the matter is our our memories fade very quickly. Just in the last couple of weeks, I became a grandfather. I remember going to the hospital and holding my grandson in my arms. So awesome. 
went on Thursday to see them at their house for the first time. Got to hold the baby again. Shannon got peed on. It was awesome. It's true. Still unscathed. Anyway, so I know that will last forever, but so. But we were there, and the funny thing is, you get back home again, and it's almost like you were never there to begin with. I, I have that same experience that happens at camp. Whenever we would go to camp, camp would be this amazing experience for an entire week where I would be up at camp. And you would remember everything that would happen there. And then the more I did it, the more I would come back home. And it's like when you come home, everything there already. We were just there like two hours ago. You get back home in the familiarity of the house and it's like a distant memory. Right? And this is why I believe when we look at John chapters 9 through 11... All of these references toward the blind man, even significant things that have happened. Because I just mentioned some significant markers. I'm not going to forget them. But at the same time, there's a different feeling when you're there, when it's, when it's all surrounding you and it's so easily forgotten when you're away from it. These had to have been very close together because everybody continues to reference the blind man. They remember it. It's still stuck in their memory. That just happened. So I believe we have context clues that give us the idea that all of this happens in a very short period of time. From John chapter 9 through John chapter 11. Number two. Second thing we can take from it. Whether foe or friend. Whether foe or friend. No one can deny that a great miracle has taken place. It's one thing to hear it from a distance, which I think up until this point, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, all of these miracles are hearsay from a distance. I heard from somebody else, you know, Joe over there, you know, but you know how he exaggerates things. You know, Joe over there exaggerates things. Sorry, Joe. Anyway, um, we know this person exaggerates things. It it wasn't really healing. It It just looked like a healing we, we know that those things don't take place. But the problem with this is everybody knew it took place. Because as soon as it happened, the Pharisees come and they not only grab the man, they grab the man's parents. Everybody in the town, everybody in the community knows that this man was born blind. He couldn't see. And now he can see. And the investigation proves that this man can now see where he didn't before. So whether you're a foe or you're a friend of Jesus, the undeniable fact is there was a man that was blind who because of Jesus now can see. That's huge. Because it leads to the third thing about these recorded events. There are two great reactions to Jesus. And I see great as in significant reactions, not great as in they're both great. No, that's not what I mean. Two significant reactions to Jesus' healing of the blind man and one lesser reaction. We're going to spend a little time on that, the two significant reactions first. First, those who witness these things either, on these two significant reactions, they either trust Jesus as Messiah or move forcefully to oppose him and his followers in increasing measure. 
They either trust him as Messiah or they move forcefully to oppose him and his followers in increasing measure. So if we see this kind of buildup through this time in Jesus' life. Let's take a look at some of these accounts. John chapter 9. This is during the interrogation of the man who was blind in front of the Pharisees who were there. He's already explained what has happened to him. He's already had his parents come in and say the man was blind and now he sees. And now they're asking him yet again, What do you say happened to you? And it starts in verse 27. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. We go back to those verses that I talked about before at the crowds in chapter 10. After Jesus is talking about him being the the good shepherd and the gate for the sheep. And that his sheep hear his voice and they'd never follow another. And verse 19, at these words, the Jews were again divided. And many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open The eyes of the blind. We go further down. As Jesus is talking to the Jews who are there. Again the Jews in verse 31. Picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them. I have shown you a great many miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of those. Replied the Jews. But for blasphemy because you a mere man. Claim to be God. So this is one reaction of that crowd. But what's the other reaction of that crowd? Verse 40, at the very end of that chapter. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And here he stayed. And many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. John chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. Verse 45 through 53 says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest at that, that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, 
But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And then at the very end of the chapter in verse 57, it says, But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might also arrest him. And finally, because it really does carry over into the next chapter, we're going to take a quick look at chapter 12. Call this a preview for next week. But at the resurrection of Lazarus, we see other people coming to know Jesus Christ as a result of it. And so in verse 9, it says this in chapter 12. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. You guys see these significant reactions? It is, I believe in Jesus, or I absolutely am going to crush him and his followers. And we don't see, really, for those who are convinced, one way or the other, we don't see this in-between ground. It's, it's, I'm all for Jesus. I'm in. He's the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. We don't accept him as the Messiah. We see him as a threat. He must be crushed. His followers must be crushed. We're going to kick them out of the synagogue. We're going to kill them. We're going to persecute them. So that this idea that Jesus is a Messiah goes away. These are the two significant reactions. And as mentioned this week, if you guys watch the videos, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the Sanhedrin made a shrewd choice to save their country at the cost of their Messiah. See, they understood the implications of Jesus being Messiah. He was not the military ruler that everybody had anticipated the Messiah to be. But he was gathering a large group of people who were calling him the Messiah, who were calling him the king of the Jews, which would be a threat to Rome, and they recognized that immediately. And so they made this shrewd plan so that they might save their temple, so that they might save their country at the expense of the life of Jesus Christ. And though Caiaphas would prophesy according to the Holy Spirit that Jesus would indeed die for the people of God. It wasn't out of faith that he did so. Because he didn't see Jesus as his Messiah. Big difference. Big difference. Every miracle Jesus did was a threat of more followers. He couldn't be their Messiah because the cost was too high. That's what they had come to the conclusion of. But it leads us to the question that I ask from the title of my sermon. An irrational hatred? Did, did the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, did they have an irrational hatred of Jesus? 
I'd say no. I don't think they had an irrational hatred of Jesus. I don't. They understood the cost. They were just unwilling to pay it. That's not irrational. That's saying, I want what I want when I want it, right? I don't really care. I want this and nothing else. Every strong believer in Jesus as Messiah stood as a testimony to their rejection of him. The one thing Jesus could never be in the minds of these ardent adversaries of Christ was irrelevant. They couldn't simply pass him off as just another long line of inconsequential Messiah figures. He had the miracles that testified to who he was, and everybody knew it. They had to destroy him. They had to punish his followers. Think about it. The blind man is cast out of the synagogue. He's no longer allowed to go and worship with the people of God concerning the Messiah who has now shown up in the flesh, in Jesus. The chief priests, on hearing the resurrection of Lazarus, are going, glory, hallelujah, we have found the Messiah. No, in order to maintain our temple worship and our country, which we deem more valuable than the Messiah, we must kill Lazarus. He must die again. Think about that. The measure and the links that we will go to preserve our way of life because the cost of following Jesus is too high. See, when someone truly understands the implications of the claims of Christ, they come to the same realization that C.S. Lewis writes about in Mere Christianity. And this is what he says. I mean, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Like I said, the reaction that we see, stark, right? People who really believe in Jesus, 100% followers of him, and those who really don't, See Jesus as the enemy and the followers as the enemy. And this is why Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Oh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 14 through the end of the chapter. And he's talking about him sharing Christ with others. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, we are the smell of death. 
and to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. You notice that reaction? Here's, here's the fragrance. We're telling people about Jesus and the cost of following Jesus. And there are two reactions. To some, we are the fragrance of Christ. And to others, we are the stench of death. For those who truly understand what's being said, it's one or it's the other. And there's not a place in between for somebody to be kind of this lukewarm, eh, whatever. Whatever about Jesus. See, in the end, a lot of people would like to say that their belief or non-belief in Christ is about evidence. But it's not. It really isn't. Think about it. The Pharisees then, everybody knew this miracle had happened. They went and investigated it themselves. They just didn't want to believe. They knew about the raising of Lazarus, but it only further convicted them that Jesus should die. Was there Ideas concerning the Messiah based upon evidence? There are many, even in today's culture, who've come from the side of atheism and come to Christ based upon the evidence. And they've written volumes of books on, on the evidence of Christ that have convinced them. We can look at Josh McDowell. Uh, you can look at his work, More Than a Carpenter, that talks about his journey. Or his massive work that he's done with his son, evidence that demands a verdict. You want evidence? Those of you who are like, I need evidence. It is a like nearly 2,000 page just stacked with evidence on the reliability of the word of God and the resurrection of Jesus and why we believe what we believe. And why, how did it get all compiled? It all got started from him investigating why he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. Same thing could be said for Lee Strobel. Same thing could be said for J. Warner Wallace, cold case detective, went out and guess what he did? I'm going to go investigate and I'm going to investigate all of these things concerning Jesus to find out whether or not there's enough evidence to prove whether it's true. He's a cold case person. Let's put the death of Jesus on trial as a cold case and see if it works out. You guys can read about that in Cold Case Christianity where he goes back and looks at the evidence that he studied. And what did they come to the conclusion of? That the things that we're reading in the word of God is trustworthy. The things that we're saying right there have enough evidence to stand up to it. If it were just a matter of evidence, we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds who have looked at the evidence and come to the conclusion that this is real. But we can look at other people at the same time who don't have that evidence, who don't believe that that evidence exists. Richard Dawkins, who talk, wrote the book The God Delusion. He is an ardent adversary against Jesus, doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, especially. Attacks him mercilessly in his book. Calls people who follow him stupid. Said at one point, probably about a dozen years ago, what would it take for you to believe 
that there's a God and the God of the Bible. Well, if he would arrange the stars in such a way where it says, I exist, or, or have some message that basically says, Richard Dawkins, I am here, something like that, I would believe. That's, that was his measuring stick. And the interesting thing is, a few years back, he actually amended that statement. He said, I used to say that if God would, if God would make the stars come up in a message, that I would believe. But the truth of the matter is, even if the stars came up and said that, I would probably look for a scientific explanation before I believed in God. Is this about evidence? I don't believe so. But he's convinced that it can't be the God of the Bible. And so whenever he talks about the God of the Bible, he's in full attack mode. Full attack mode. Full attack mode. Why? Because every testimony that Jesus is Lord is a testimony against what he believes. So he has to attack. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Second, the lesser reaction are those on the fence who cannot deny what they've witnessed, yet they're afraid of the consequences of belief. And they stand in the background without making any real decision or difference. John chapter 9, we get a glimpse of that. From one of the most unexpected places, the blind man's parents. So when the Pharisees bring the blind man's parents in to verify that this is the son that was born blind and was that really his condition and does he really see now, this is their response. Starting in verse 19. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That's why the parents said, he is of age. Ask him. You know, I hate to say it, but most of us today are more like the blind man's parents. Right? We understand the cost of belief. We see the evidence of it. But we don't want the cost of standing firm in what we've seen. So we play nice with a culture that's at war with Christianity. We want to be liked by those around us. We keep our position and our reputation with the world but make no difference for the kingdom of God because we only give just enough to cost us nothing. That's the problem. It doesn't cost us anything. We want a Jesus that we can say Jesus loves you but Jesus doesn't demand anything of you. 
we want to try and convince them and love them into the kingdom of God without telling them that they are wrong and they need to repent. That Jesus died for their sins, their wrongdoings. That's the reason for which he's come. That's an offensive message to a world around us who wants Jesus to accept them as they are. See, Jesus wasn't hung on the cross because he did these miracles and all these followers were there. Jesus stated very clearly why the world hated him. He did it a couple chapters ago. John actually mentioned it in his sermon. Last week, if we look at John chapter 7 and verse 7, when he's talking to his brothers who at that time did not believe him. Jesus says this, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. That's why they hated Jesus. If Jesus were just a miracle worker that agreed with everything that you did, do you think that there would be a problem? No, he'd probably get the Romans on board with that too. I am the king. Not me, Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. And I'm calling all men to repent, to turn away. To understand that the deeds that they're doing are evil. This is why the world hates Jesus. This is why the world hates the followers of Jesus. Wasn't it Jesus who said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well? If they did this to me, won't they do this to you as well? And it's like, it's the weirdest thing that we live in a culture right now where we're so worried about being liked by everybody else because we're actually telling the truth. We were told this was going to happen. You want to make a difference for Jesus and you're going to have to count the cost. It's going to cost you something. You telling the truth in Christ will offend those who do not wish to hear the truth. They may cut you out of their lives. They might want nothing to do with you. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you, you might be called a hater in this culture today. Because guess what? You believe there's only two genders. Not 17. Or 27. Or 52. You think I'm joking. I'm not. Because there are some who have been in our congregation who have struggled with that. Because they're being lied to from the world and you telling them the truth. They call you evil. And wrong. And so what do we want to do? Well, maybe if we just play nice with them, we can woo them into the kingdom of God without having to mention these hard truths that they don't want to hear. I came to Christ because I knew I was a sinner in need of a savior. And my sin was abhorrent to God and it's what put him on the cross. That's why he came. And he had to tell me that my acts were evil so that I would appreciate the sacrifice of Christ and understand everything Jesus has done for me. 
It didn't happen just because God loved me. Yes, he did. And he sent his son to die on the cross for me. Why? Because I'm an evil sinner. And so are you. And so are the ones that you're wanting to reach for Jesus. And until they're convinced that they're at the end of their rope and they're in need of Jesus, that there's nobody else but him, they'll never be convinced. They'll stand in this either squishy middle or they'll be here an ardent enemy of Christ seeing that every testimony against their lifestyle, against the things that they have chosen, though you tell them the truth, they're going to double down on it. You shouldn't be living together. You shouldn't be doing drugs. You shouldn't be in a homosexual relationship. You shouldn't be viewing pornography. You shouldn't be doing that. Wait a second. Why are you so judgmental? No, I am declaring that these things are evil, that you need a savior just like me. And he has come to show himself, to give you life. But too many of us are in the squishy middle. We want to be the parents who keep our synagogue membership and hopefully Jesus will understand. Guys, I, I want to tell you, you want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? You got to start standing firm, really believing and understanding that the culture is at war with Jesus. I'm sorry, it just is. War. And your testimony stands in stark contrast, just like it did with the Pharisees. And what they're going to do as a result of it is they're going to malign you. They may not want to have Thanksgiving dinner with you. Not being invited over for Christmas. Not going to be friends anymore. Be a coworker that's strained. Not because you're trying to be mean. Not because you're trying to be a jerk about it biblically. Not the way the world thinks being a jerk about it. But because you're simply sharing Christ. You want to make a difference? You got to take that chance. You have to. You have to. And you either come on one side or the other. And lose your place of worship. If you're following this Jesus, who do you say that he is? Well, he opened my eyes. We know that God listened. You were steeped in sin at birth. Get out of here. Who are you to talk to us? Isn't that our fear? Isn't that our fear? When we think about our family members, we think about our friends, our coworkers. Isn't that our fear? If we just play nice enough, they'll see Jesus in us. We've got to be for Jesus enough that we're willing to offend them because of the cross of Christ. We need to tell the truth in love. And if that costs us a relationship, that's okay. Not because it'll be fun. Don't get me wrong, but because we'll be standing for Jesus. And you know what? People take notice when you stand for Jesus boldly. You know what they don't do? They don't take notice when we'd never say Jesus at all. Do you stand with me?
It is a scary thing to follow Christ. It's the most free, freeing thing in the world. But it's scary because it costs us everything. Make no bones about it. It really does. And you and I are called to count the cost. What it means to follow Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That we might make a difference for his kingdom. It's only going to happen when we're bold enough to share the truth and love with those around us, no matter what it costs, because they need Jesus more than they need our approval. They do. They do. That might offend them. But it just might bring them to the throne of grace. And isn't that what we're called to do? I think it's worth it. I really do. I think it's worth all the names you're going to get called. All the things you'll be disinvited to. Because you're going to make a difference in somebody's life who sees you bold enough for standing for Jesus without compromise. You want to change the culture? I do. I really do. I want to see this culture changed. It's only going to happen when we live in like that. We have that reaction that Jesus means that much. That's my prayer for you and myself for today. Let's be bold for his sake. God, thank you. Thank you so much for today. I know we live in a time where there are many people who have an irrational hatred. They realize that Jesus being Lord would cost them everything that they want. And so they rail against Christ and they rail against us, his followers. And, and sometimes that puts us in a place of timidity, Lord, where we are, we are less likely to share boldly the truth of Christ in love. God, I pray that you would give us courage to share truthfully who Jesus is, what he's done for us, why they need Jesus, even if that makes us their enemy. Because God, you want them that even if they don't believe you, that they would look and see the miracles and at least trust what they're seeing right then and there. God, that there would be an honest accounting, dear Heavenly Father, of who Jesus is, that they would know the decision that they're making based upon the evidence that's been presented in your word and in the life of Jesus Christ. I stand as one who's convinced, who wants to be more convinced still, so that I can share boldly without hesitation to a world that needs Jesus. Help us, oh Lord, to be those people to hold out that hope to our friends, to our family, to the people that we meet all throughout our days, dear Heavenly Father, because only in that boldness are we going to see the change that you're going to use through us and through the Holy Spirit to see other people come to him. God, that's what we want to see more than anything else. We just lift it before you. We pray that you will help us have that courage to do that to live boldly for you in the name of Jesus. Amen.